Okay. Um, Enormous melting pot of bias is now the episode title. (laughs) That makes it sound like all life course epi is a melting pot of bias. Today, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Paola Gilsands to the podcast to talk about life course epidemiology. Dr. Gilsands is a research scientist at the Division of Research at Kaiser Permanente Northern California. She has an MPH in epidemiology and biostatistics from the University of California, Berkeley, and a doctorate in social epi from Harvard University. Her research is focused on examining risk factors for dementia across the life course and identifying modifiable risk factors contributing to health disparities across sexes and racial and ethnic groups. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I love talking about life course epi, so I'm just excited to have the opportunity to talk to you guys and and your listeners about it. Yeah, and we're really excited to learn more. I think it's a a topic that most people uh, should be more aware of. Um, So yeah, we're really excited to have you. Before we begin um, with the the hard type of questions, the real stuff, uh, we like to ask, uh, you know, a few lighter questions so everyone can get to know you a bit better. So the the first question for today is, if you could attend a dinner party and invite one famous person, a celebrity, a historical figure, anyone you've always wanted to meet, who would it be? So actually, I have a bit of a different take on that question. What person I would really like to meet is an average everyday person uh, 2,000 years in the future. I'm really interested in in society and day-to-day life and how that affects health. So I'm really curious to see what the future holds in that regard. And I would very much like to know if 2,000 years from now we ever get the hovercrafts we've been promised to. (laughs) That'll be my first question. Don't worry. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. On Matt's behalf, you'll ask that person that question. That's perfect. All right. That's a very good answer. I didn't expect that. Thank you. (laughs) When you were growing up, I'm sure, well, you may have, but you most likely didn't imagine yourself being a a research scientist epidemiologist. What did you want to be when you were growing up? So when I was really little, I really wanted to be a firefighter. Mm. And I don't know when that I kind of transitioned out of that. But junior year of high school, I got introduced to public health by a family friend named Dr. Roberta Williams. And she told me about the field. And ever since then, I've been fascinated with public health. I didn't know I was going to be a research scientist at the Division of Research at Kaiser Permanente, but I knew I wanted to work in public health. Well, you know, you're not psychic, but (laughs) (laughs) I guess we'll still interview you. you. (laughs) If you were psychic, actually, epidemiology would be so much easier. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not, so that's why I want to meet the person 2,000 years in the future. Of course, it all comes full circle. But junior year of high school is an early intro to public health. That's really neat that you, you've had this idea in your, your mind since then. Yeah, it's, it's really great. And public health is so diverse. So I wasn't, I'm not doing the aspect of public health that I thought I'd be doing as a junior in high school. But that's that fair. just really shows the diversity in public health, that there are so many different aspects that can speak to you and that you can work in. Yes, and that juniors in high school are not all that reliable at picking their future career options. (laughs) Yes, that's also a good point. (laughs) You did better than most, so I I give you props for that. 
<laughs> All right. And, and the last question that, you know, I think listeners would be interested to know about you is if you could eat only one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? So I would eat bone chicken. It's a Brazilian cheese bread. Mm. My mom is from Brazil. And so I, I, the whole family on my mom's side is in Brazil, with the exception of my mom. And so we grew up eating this Brazilian cheese bread, which is absolutely delicious. And I would happily eat it for the rest of my life. So, so let's talk a little bit more because I know Matt really likes cheese and I really like bread. So, so we need to hear a little bit more about this cheese. Is it warm? Is it baked in? Is it on top? Let's, let's get into this a little bit. Let's break it uh, down. <laughs> it's delicious. They're small or they come in a variety of sizes. My personal favorite are the smaller ones. They're best when they're warm and fresh out of the oven. And they kind of have this gooey center, which is the cheese is mixed in throughout the bread. And it's a yucca flour. And it's, it's so good. It really is just phenomenal. And I could eat them nonstop. I've eaten so many, I've given myself a stomach ache. So, so we're going to need to need to pause the podcast for a while while I go and just grab something to, to eat. Um, I'll be back in just a minute. I hope it's cheesy and has a warm, gooey center because oh, that will sounds be. really good. <laughs> Oh, it's delicious. Mm -hmm. I thought you were about to say that we need to make sure that the recipe gets released along with the show notes. Oh, I would like that too. Can we we do that as well? It sounds like a family secret, but I will look up a recipe related. Uh, Maybe Google will will help me out with this one. And, and, you know, so the listeners that are baking savvy, which I think there are quite a few epidemiologists that are good at baking. um, You know, maybe, maybe we could start a new thing. Sourdough is so... Spring 2020. We're now on to this. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, you will find recipes online. And you can get some some mixes at like Brazilian supermarkets that you add the egg and water. And then there's a specific, you know, there's various types of cheeses that you can add and that could be pre-mixed into the mix that you get from the supermarket. Oh, okay, that I, sounds about my level of baking. I could, I could do the supermarket mix version. <laughs> okay, That's I my am, level. I am Googling Brazilian supermarket as we speak. <laughs> You're in Boston, right? You can definitely find it in Boston. Nice. Okay. Yep. I'm getting a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Great. I'm excited for you. And oh, that's great. I'm glad we got to to chat about this a little bit more. I learned something new already. But I think now we'll transition to the the real reason we have you here is that um, you are an expert in the field of life course epidemiology. And and this is a branch of epidemiology that I think most listeners will have heard of, but perhaps it isn't as widely known as as some of the other areas of our field. So I guess, you know, to start off just at the basic level, how do you define life course epidemiology? What do you what do you say to people who seem to think that life course epidemiology is just anything we study because it deals with some part of the life course? I think of life course epidemiology as it looks at the biological, behavioral, and also social processes that operate across an individual's life course. And it could also be intergenerationally to influence health conditions later in life and the development of health conditions. And a really key component is this life course aspect. So I think that if you have something that you examine only in one time point, unless you are considering the other time points in the life course, then you most likely are not doing life course epidemiology. And since we're covering kind of the the basics of life course epidemiology, I want to talk about three models that are really common in life course epidemiology. So similar to what I was just hinting to, there's the early life critical period model. So it posits that exposures that happen early in life 
affect late life outcomes or later life outcomes, regardless of later exposures. And the critical period version says that nothing else matters. Then there's the accumulation model that posits that each of the exposures of interest across the life course has a separate non-zero effect on the outcome and that it's in the same direction. So something in early life, that exposure has a direct effect. Midlife would also have a direct effect and late life would have a direct effect. And it accumulates across life. And then the last really common uh, model that's used is the pathway model. And it posits that your early life effect has an effect on later life through your midlife. So it's kind of this trajectory model that your early life exposure triggers a series of exposures that happen across the life course and then that last one has the direct effect and the rest are mediated. So as you can see, because it has this aspect of looking across the life course, that's really the, the key component of the life course model. So if you're only looking at one time point, unless your outcome's at a different time point, and unless you're really interested in a critical component and you have and theoretically think that the other time points don't have an effect, then you're probably not using a life course model. Those models are really helpful to describe exactly what life course epi is. When when you talk about these three models, is it people ascribe to one versus the other versus you know is it like a, a Bayesian or frequentist kind of thing where you're you're more likely in one camp or another or do most life course epi folks consider different models depending on the the question or the exposure outcome relationship they're they're interested in answering. I'm really glad you brought that up. So you don't have to fall into one of these three camps. And also there are other versions that are kind of in the middle of these models. And very often it's exposure specific. So you could think of things that you think happen in midlife that might be really important and uh, have a direct effect. But you could also think of other exposures that could set you up for kind of more of this trajectory pathway model. And that varies by exposure, as, as you were saying. The critical periods model, the first one you talked about, I find that to be, I guess, the hardest one for me to to wrap my head around only because I have trouble thinking of an exposure that could happen in, in early life, happen in childhood, but not affect anything later on except for the outcome you're interested in. Is this something that you've thought of before or am I misunderstanding it? Diethylstabestrol, right, would be the an example of that where exposure in utero leads to cancers in female offspring, but that don't happen till 20 years later. And so something has to be occurring in between, presumably. Would that be an example? So I think a lot of exposures that happen in utero could be thought of as kind of this critical early period. It's not sure what the mediators are. That's a really good question. So I would think that the mediators in this case have to be something related to hormones during puberty or something that's happening in in the developmental process. So an example I often use about like direct effects earlier in childhood is education. So education could work in two ways, education with dementia risk, which is an area I'm especially interested in. So you could picture that the education you receive during childhood has direct physiological changes to your brain structure and that these brain structure changes later in life could lead to cognitive reserve and and prevent cognitive decline or, or lower your risk of dementia. 
Alternatively, education could set you up for a trajectory of exposures where high education attainment allows for higher income levels in midlife, which is associated with healthier lifestyles that then reduces your impact of dementia risk later in life. So you don't have to think that they're happening separately. I, in fact, suspect that they happen concurrently, but they are kind of two different models in which education could affect dementia risk later in life. Oh, that really helps clarify. Thank you. I, I, I be, I'm understanding how, how that could work. You mentioned in your definition that um, Life Course Epi also considers social exposures and social components. You just mentioned education as, as one of those. And sometimes I think of social or education, sorry, um, under the, the umbrella of social epidemiology. So how is Life Course Epi different than social epi? So Life Course Epi encompasses various things. And I think that the, the key characteristic of of life course epi is the looking across the life course and really taking into consideration how exposures across the life course affect health. And it, it's open to a variety of types of exposures. So it could be something very biological. It could also be something social. While social epi will often or can easily look across the life course, it doesn't necessarily have to, in my opinion. I think both perspectives really complement each other really nicely and can be used conjunction really nicely. And uh, a lot of my research does do that. They're two of my favorite perspectives to take when it I mean, it, it makes complete sense because looking across the life course, you cannot ignore the impact of social forces. This comes back to something Whitney Robinson said in her podcast with us, which is all epi is related to social epi. And I think that that's particularly true when you're talking about across the life course. So is all epi life course epi then? No, I don't think no. so. Because you really have to be aware and like explicitly think about the life course when you're doing life course epi. And I think that it could be integrated into so much research, but it, it often isn't. And I think that's the key point. I mean, I, I, you know, as somebody who comes to this from a perspective that is not a life course perspective, I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, well, everything is, is life course happy because as Haley said in the beginning, because it's part of the life course. But life course happy is really about, seems to me, really about thinking about the whole life course and those, those critical periods, as you talked about, the way that it impacts outcomes later on. But that seems to be really challenging to study. I mean, how do you actually go about doing this when I guess I would uh, think that the only way to, to do this with no bias and no no real problems would be to enroll a birth cohort and follow them for their entire lives and collect information on them over time. But no one can really do that. So what are the key challenges that Life Course Epi faces and how do you deal with them? So I consider myself a data dork and I absolutely love the idea of enrolling a birth cohort and okay. collecting all that data. Although, of course, like respecting people's privacy and ethics and following all of that as well, of course. But that sounds like a phenomenal opportunity. So it is really challenging when you're doing life course epidemiology because especially when you're interested in, in things related to late life, that's a very long period of time that you're interested in. And often a lot 
lot of cohorts start in midlife when you're looking at, at late life outcomes. And this it's kind of arbitrary when it starts. Maybe not arbitrary for what the cohort was designed for, but for some of my research, looking at life course, it's kind of arbitrary that it's in midlife when I'm also interested in early life outcomes. And so I think there are a lot of methodological challenges. And one of the first things that you have to do is have a really careful study design and really try to leverage the data that you have available for yourself and hopefully be creative about different sources of data so that you can cover as much of the lifespan as possible. For example, because one big issue is having information on such a, a wide range. Another big issue is time varying confounders that could also behave as mediators. I think that that can happen in a variety of contexts and life course epidemiology would, would certainly be one of them, especially since we're looking over time. And inverse probability weights are a really promising way to handle this and to, to work around that issue. Another issue is selection bias, which is also related to kind of when your cohort starts and the idea that someone has to, you know, live long enough to be part of that cohort and the initiation of that cohort and also the type of people who actually enter the cohort. And one way to handle that is also through inverse probability weights. And one of the reasons I really love where I work is that we have this really cool data set that's the multiphasic health checkups that happened and like started in the 1960s. And then we can follow individuals using electronic medical records later. And we can see who that participated in the 1960s is still available in 1996 when our electronic medical records started for us to follow up for dementia diagnoses later, right, later on. And we have characteristics from the 1960s that allow us to create these inverse probability weights. So inverse probability weighting does seem to me an incredibly promising solution to some of these problems, though obviously it only works if you have the data to be able to undo the selection bias that gets created. And so, you know, it, it does seem to me you need to be really careful in thinking through what the mechanisms are by which that selection bias is occurring and, and having that data. But it also seems to me there, there are a whole host of other potential problems. Not that this is unique to life course epi, but it does seem to me it's exaggerated. Let me throw them out there and see if any of them resonate with you. So it seems to me competing risks is a potential problem because you're trying to study things that happen potentially early in the life course and then that have outcomes that affect mortality much later when people mortality is already increasing. You have the problem of if you're going to enroll a cohort at a time period after that exposure might have occurred, you've got potential for recall bias if you're collecting data through asking people about their exposures. You have the potential for just the problems with prevalent exposures in that people have already experienced, you're enrolling them at a time when they've already experienced much of that exposure as opposed to before they've accumulated. And, and as I say, none of these seem to me unique to life course epi, but it does seem it's a it's a tough thing to to try to understand the impacts with such a long delay. So do any of those resonate as, as problems or am I just sort of coming at this from the outside and and, and making things up? No, certainly. I think that those are issues that we encounter in Life Course Epi. As you said, they're not specific to Life Course Epi. They occur in, in other forms of Epi as well, but it is relevant to Life Course Epi. And I think that one of the really key things is being careful and thoughtful about how you get your data and trying to come up with study design methods that minimize recall bias, that are able to get you the most comprehensive data across the life course as, as possible, which isn't 
always, I mean, it's not possible to get it across the entire life course at this point, but you want to get as close as possible. And I also think that another really important part is being very thoughtful, deliberate, and explicit about what your question is and what you can actually answer with your data and acknowledging the limitations of your data and saying, you know, we're interested in the effect across the life course, but what we actually have data on is the exposure during this time period. And this exposure might be correlated with exposures prior to it or not, depending on what your exposure is. But just being really explicit and, and telling your audience, the readers, what's going on and, and what you can actually answer with the data that you have and how that informs the larger question that you might, that might be the goal that you're trying to answer, but can't fully answer with the data you have. And so to, to ground the rest of this discussion, could you can you give us an example of a of a really good life course epi study that you've either done or that you've read that you thought this is a really good example where the life course perspective becomes uh, really useful? Oh, there are so many. So I think that with dementia research, it's especially interesting. Dementia yeah, takes a long time to develop. And so exposures early in life can be really relevant. Mm -hmm. Also, dementia is really interesting in general because there's a huge variety of risk factors. So I think similar to the field of life course epidemiology, dementia research can attract a lot of different types of researchers because there's such a variety in the type of risk factor that could affect dementia risk. That's a side note because that wasn't actually your question. <laughs> but, <laughs> hey, we'll that was a it. nice plug for dementia research. <laughs> yes, I, I think we'll dementia research it. is so interesting. It is. And, it is. But so in the field of dementia research, there's actually a lot of examples of really good life course papers. And there's this really interesting thing where risk factors that happen in midlife can have a different association than the same risk factor later in life. And I think that's a really great example of why it's important to take the life course perspective. What would be an example of it? of a, an exposure that has a different effect in, in midlife than in later life? BMI and... I was going to say obesity has a well-known differential effect in midlife and, and later life with regard to, to dementia as an outcome. So yes, I think that's a, a very good example. Okay, so so as somebody who doesn't know either of these fields, what is the relationship? Okay, so I will try to give a summary. Please correct me if, if you think I get something wrong. But in general, I think that being high BMI in midlife appears to be more, we'll call it dangerous, harmful, increases your risk of developing dementia. And obesity or high BMI in late life does not have a similarly strong effect. And I think the jury is still out, though I have an opinion, but the jury is still out on whether this is a true effect or whether this is a, a mess of methodologic problems mm -hmm. um, that is creating this, this effect. But that is in general, I think, what the literature shows. Is that, is that right, Paula? Yeah, you did a great job summarizing it. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I am incredibly impressed that you were able to get through that whole thing without using the phrase collider stratification bias. I didn't even use it. And I will say there's some folks out there like Elizabeth Rosemayeta, who, who we've talked about, about collider stratification, but there's a, a lot of terrific work about whether these dementia related issues are selection related, uh, who makes it into old age, selection related in terms of who uh, remains in your cohort in old age. Is there reverse causation going on? It's really like an enormous melting pot of bias when you're trying to disentangle. Okay. Um, enormous melting 
same pot of bias is now the episode title. Because <laughs> that makes it sound like all, oh, of course, Effie is a melting pot of bias, which is true of every field. I mean, I felt like a few minutes ago when you asked that question, you were like, and there's this bias, and there's that bias. And you were really being a Debbie Downer in, in, in that question because that's true of any research field. I mean, you, everyone you has are, their issues. As always, you are, of course, correct on that one. That you were being a Debbie Downer? Well, thank you. That I was being Debbie Downer, <laughs> and I was, I was attributing to one field something that probably plagues the whole field. And what I respect so much about Life Course Epi and why I'm so interested in it is that, in my opinion, the researchers in this field are so forthright and so open. We all have issues related to bias, but I feel like they're more front and center when it comes to talking about Life Course related issues because they're, they're exacerbated in a lot of ways, so you can't escape them. Whereas other fields, you know, you can tuck it in the discussion section and, you know, there may be this kind of bias, but... Um, yeah, you know, it does. It, our estimates are conservative, so we're not worried about it, right? And and that's not something I find all that often in in life course epi context. Do you find that as well? I agree. I think it's really important to acknowledge, and people in in life course epidemiology often try to make it a point to acknowledge it. And I think that's that's valuable. I also think it's amazing that you still find a signal, right? Like if there's all this measurement error and possible biases that may either counterbalance each other or magnify each other, that we still find a signal that that's pretty amazing. And I think that that speaks to how important it is and how relevant it is. Assuming it's not all just one big bias, which I really don't think it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't think, think the that. whole field is a, is a, <laughs> a bias. Neither do I. Neither do I. Let me make that clear. <laughs> okay. Can I just make the make the case though that like if you were studying the effects of say a, a drug on you know short term thirty day survival, that is easier to do from a, a bias standpoint than trying to study the effects of an exposure that happens in childhood and its impacts on dementia at age sixty or seventy. Right, but ease is not the whole point. There's some stuff that isn't easy to do, but is very interesting and can be very impactful and, and meaningful. That's not to say that your example isn't impactful and meaningful, but just that the ease and simplicity of, a, of being able to do the analyses isn't always. No, no and, I, and I would be the first to say that I, I am certainly convinced that we have spent way too much time focusing on proximal causes at, you know, to our peril and focusing on these much longer term and social, you know, social epi exposures as well are probably where we could have the bigger impact as a field. I was only commenting on the, the idea that from a standpoint of minimizing bias, it may be a little bit easier when the exposure outcome pair is pretty close to each other yeah. in time. But I think if you were, let's talk about pharmacoepi for a minute, because I think they sometimes study shorter windows. You know, if you asked, I think, a pharmacoepidemiologist, they could list for you a whole number of biases that affect their research questions. And they're definitely different than the ones that you're going to consider in life course epi. But it's not a question of who has versus doesn't have bias. It's really a question of how you deal with the bias and what strategies are out there, you know, to, to fix it. When you have something like immortal time bias, for example, sometimes when that is built in to your data set and the way that it was collected or, or measured, you can't undo that, I think. Mm -hmm. Whereas at least with some of 
of the biases that we talk about with regard to life course epi, there are some strategies that I've read about, like inverse probability weighting, et cetera, that are effective. So maybe it's a better situation. Maybe it's, of course, I have to be the optimist, but maybe it's easier because there are strategies to fix some of the problems. So I don't know. It's, it's field specific, I would say. I think you bring up a really great point that is in any field of epidemiology, you really need to play to the strengths of the data that you have and the type of data that you have to pick the appropriate, you know, to do the best study design that you can and to pick the appropriate methods that really leverage the data that you have to minimize bias. And I think that that's important regardless of which branch of epidemiology you're working in. No, my, I absolutely agree. We've talked a little bit about selection bias and, and measurement issues, and you mentioned time-bearing confounding. A bias that I, I find particularly interesting in the life course context is reverse causation. And so I, I'm curious about some whether you have thoughts or ideas about how reverse causation or you know bidirectional relationships between exposures and outcomes can mess up the answer that you get from your study and what life course epi researchers try to do about that. Sure. So I think it's really tempting to think that if you are taking a life course method that the temporal order is really well established. And sometimes that can be the case and it's it's very neat and you don't have to worry about reverse causation. But there are some outcomes that take a long time to develop and that there can be subclinical changes that happen that depending on what your exposure is might be affected. So it's important to think through that. As it is in all aspects of epidemiology, you really want to think for your question for your risk factor and for your outcome, is there the possibility that of reverse causation, that changes that are associated with your outcome and the development of your outcome, are they impacting your exposure assessment? This might be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask anyways, and um, we'll see what you think about it. Um, it's not a dumb question. No, no, it really might be. Um, <laughs> but, but when you're, you're talking about reverse causation, you have an exposure in, let's say, your teenage years that affects your risk of outcome, which then affects your exposure in midlife, which then affects your risk of outcome. But then you're really interested in studying the outcome in old age. Does the earlier reverse causation matter? Or or is that just subsumed with the idea that you're looking across the life course and it's assumed that there will be some bi-directional effect? You, you just broke my brain. So <laughs> I can't wait to hear the answer to this one. <laughs> I'm trying to think through kind of an example of your question, because I think that that would help me. So um, I, I often think of smoking as just something that is, okay. is clearly harmful throughout. So let's say um, in early life, you are exposed to secondhand smoke, which affects your lung function and harms your lung tissue in some way. And then let's say you choose, because you've been around smoking, I think that might increase your risk of becoming a smoker. So then there's some association between the early life exposure and your midlife exposure, which further damages your lungs. And then, you know, in late life, maybe that example doesn't make sense. But yeah, I guess thinking through a real life example of that might be hard. So it doesn't make sense. I'm trying to think of like maybe cognition and education. Hmm. I'm just starting to think through this. So <laughs> correct me if this is not what you had in mind. But let's say early life education might affect your cognition in midlife, which could affect your occupation. And then there's late life, like cognition. how occupation affects your late life cognition. 
So yes, if I were interested in how midlife occupation affects late life cognition, I would need to take into consideration the role of early life cognition in all of that. So you don't just assume that it's kind of subsumed by the the midlife occupation. They're not perfectly correlated, I guess, early life education with midlife occupation. So you'd need to separately consider the effect of those two variables. I think so. But the fact that you asked that question makes me think I didn't understand your question in the first place. (laughs) Or maybe I am transitioning my question into different things, but... Yes. So so I guess you have answered my question in a way that is reverse causation in early life and how it affects your midlife is still important to consider those as distinct periods when you're looking at late life outcomes. Is that a correct statement? I would say that it is always important to consider the possibility of reverse causation and that it would be exposure and outcome specific. And that is true across, I would say, all reasons. That is a very solid and diplomatic answer to a (laughs) messy and inarticulate question. So thank you for that. So, okay, so what I'm taking away from this is simply that it's just difficult to do this kind of research, again, as we say, as with anything, and that you need to you need to be very careful and think through all of the potential sources of bias and errors in interpretation. So given that, what would you say are the, the most promising areas of research in terms of life course epi? Are, are there things that have been researched and been very fruitful? Are there areas that you think people should be looking into? Are there areas that you're looking into? I think life course epidemiology in general has been very fruitful. I think it's such an interesting perspective that is really important. Another aspect that I think is really valuable about life course epidemiology is that it helps us understand and inform timing of potential interventions. Mm. So it doesn't assume that an exposure behaves the same way across the life course. And we touched upon this briefly earlier. And I think that that's really valuable. I'm especially interested in modifiable risk factors across the life course. I'm really interested in diminishing health disparities. And one of the things that I really care about is kind of figuring out the timing that would allow us to optimize an intervention and really identifying populations and timing of interventions is is critical for us to be able to implement these interventions and, and make a difference in these health disparities. And I think that's such an important aspect of life course epi and all epi, but in, you know, in particular because we're talking about life course, that the research you're doing is intended to improve the health of the population. And the way in which you can do that is through intervention, implementing interventions and, and coming up with interventions that will effectively reduce your risk of whatever outcome you're interested in. What are the um, risk factors that you think are most promising for those or most amenable to those types of intervention in the life course context? So I'm really interested in health disparities by race, ethnicity, and by sex. And I think that one thing that's really important to note is that often those health disparities can be due to racism and sexism. And so I think that if we could address those components and racism and sexism, we would have huge changes in health outcomes. Related to to the topic of racism, I guess, when you think about race as an exposure or a risk factor um, in the life course context, do you think about race being your risk factor or racism being your risk factor or, you know, increasing your risk of some of these outcomes? Or is it a combination of both of those two things? I know there's some debate on Twitter lately about, quote, the effect of race on outcome one. Why, you know, or is that a real thing to, to question when really we're asking a question about racism and so social factors? So, so what does the research in, in life course epi say about race as a construct versus racism? 
I think a, a lot of the research that I do, a lot of it is about the racism that individuals face. Some of it being structural racism and some of it being interpersonal racism and race ethnicity is used as a proxy for that racism. But I would argue that a lot about a lot of it is about racism or with regards to looking at sex disparities, disparities by sex, it would be sexism. I think the other thing to keep in mind when thinking about health disparities is that it's relevant for life course is there's kind of like three things that I like to keep in mind. One is the distribution of the risk factor. So is it more prevalent among certain racial ethnic groups or in one sex versus the other? The other question is what is the prevalence across the life course. As we talked about, it's important to take into consideration the entire life course. So I'm interested in the prevalence at, at various points. And then the third part is, is, is there a difference in the association between the exposure and the outcome by race, ethnicity, or by sex? And often that could be because of the social context in which the exposure is happening. So for example, education. Education could be an example and the returns that an individual gets for their education may vary by race ethnicity or by sex. So that's an, an example of effect modification that could be affected by, by racism and sex. Okay, so this has been a, a really informative conversation for me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we wrap up, I'd just like to say for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting. It also gets you access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, uh, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. I also just want to take a minute to plug our sister podcast, Casual Inference from the American Journal of Epidemiology. If you like our podcast, we think you'd really like that one as well. We appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our next episode.